0: And now I'd like to introduce to you tapestry. Tapestry, lovely intro there. How you do- all doing this morning? How you all doing this morning? All right. Really uh, felt the presence of God during that worship time. Uh, yeah, we're talking about tapestry. Uh, Becky, who does our lights back there, did this lovely tapestry here. Isn't that wonderful? Kind of a symbolizing <clears throat> tapestry. That's very nice. Uh, just by way of prelude, uh, the shirt stands for the de- devolution of human beings. See, because every time I wear this shirt, some folks out there who have ADD. There's a couple folks in our church who have ADD, and and it's distracting because they're always wondering what is that shirt about. So I'm just getting it off my chest. <laughs> uh, just getting out there right now. So see, it's it's the the, the devolution. Uh, so we get, you know, we're, we're descending into violence. Violence is a, is, is more primitive. Than, oh, no, don't, not, that's not what I'm going to preach on this morning. Quit distracting me, you ADD people. And uh, the reason I'm wearing my d- these dumb glasses is because. I, uh, lo- I had a really, you might have known I had a real cool, funky pair uh, a couple months ago. Well, I lost them. <laughs> and I had a backup pair, and I lost it. Uh, so I, I, these are the same glasses I had like eight years ago. Uh, and my eyes have gotten worse since then, so I can hardly even see you. But anyways, I just wanted to explain why I'm not styling it, all right? Uh, but I, I'll get a new pair here pretty soon, so as soon as the insurance kicks in. All right. <laughs> so we are doing this uh, series here on tapestry. Um... Where we're going to be showing the the different uh, streams in the Christian tradition that flow into Woodland Hills and and kind of inform our identity. Um, and this morning I'm going to be teaching on really the foundation of the whole series because I'm going to be talking about the foundation of Woodland Hills Church, which is the foundation of the Church Universal throughout history. What's sometimes called the historic Orthodox Church, the Church Universal. And so this message is entitled uh, "Our One Foundation," our one foundation, and. Um, We're going to try to leave time at the end of every message throughout this series to take questions. So as I'm going through this message, if a question arises in your mind, you can text this number, uh, 651-321-3030, and um, write write in your questions, and we'll we'll try to to have some time at the end of the message uh, to take some of those. Uh, That's always fun and informative. Um, So this is series tapestry. Here's why we're doing it. I, I get a lot, I hear a lot regularly, and some of you probably have heard this too, that um, Woodland Hills Church is, is a kind of a strange church, it's, it's weird, it's odd in some ways, we're an odd duck, I'm perfectly normal, but uh, you guys are just kind of, uh... oh, we're just weird in some ways. Uh, and I, I get this a lot. People will say things like, well, can't, are you an evangelical church? Because you seem evangelical. You, you believe evangelical beliefs, and we do. We, we have a, you know, believe in the, grounding everything on the Bible. The Bible is divinely inspired and all that. But there's other aspects of the church that just don't seem to fit the mold. So, for example, um, we have a a strong conviction about uh, how the kingdom of God isn't just a version of the kingdom of the world, and we need to keep those two things separate, and that's why we don't jump on political bandwagons, and that's not all that typical for American evangelical churches. And we have a a strong conviction about uh, uh, believing in Jesus isn't just enough, we're called to be disciples, and so following Jesus is a strong emphasis of ours, and that's not really that typical for American churches. Uh, Our strong emphasis on on, uh, the need to love our enemies and to refrain from violence, that's not a typical emphasis of American churches. Our our belief that we're still under the first mandate given human beings in Genesis 1, that our responsibility is to care for animals and to care for the environment, that's not all that typical for American churches. Our our, our passion about racial reconciliation and our our call to uh, sacrifice for the poor and to, to minister to them are not always that, that typical for American evangelicals. And some have just noticed how we, we have a, a kind of an openness here, uh, no pun intended, uh, the, a freedom, where um, we, we're not as dogmatic on some things as some churches are. We give people space to grow uh, in their walk with God and space to think out loud and have different opinions. And some have noted that that's not all that typical. So we're just kind of odd. Evangelical in our beliefs, but the culture uh, of the church isn't uh, typical for American evangelicalism. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I am hesitant to even identify myself as an evangelical. Just being out loud here. It, I find that the way the term... Unless I know it, the audience and I know that they understand what I mean by it, I'll use it then, but in, in other contexts, well, the way the word evangelical is used uh, typically in the, in the culture... Often it represents something that I wouldn't want to identify with. I wouldn't say that's my tribe. And and the way the word is used, it often means, frankly, it comes to represent a lot of things that I think are antithetical to the kingdom. And so I'm hesitant to use that word. A good portion of people who come to Woodland Hills are folks who are basically evangelical in their belief, but who have, for various reasons, become disgruntled with the evangelical church, uh, have i have just come to the conclusion that, that it's missing the mark in certain important ways. So we're an odd duck. And so to get clear on sort of who we are and, and what our convictions are and our identity, we thought it'd be good to uh, look at the various aspects of church history, various streams in church history that form or at least inform the identity of this church. Here's a broad overview. Uh, this is a chart that you can get out at The Hub. I encourage you to pick it up. We have a more detailed version out at The Hub. Um, this isn't a to-scale chronology of church history. It's just showing the, the various relationships and lines of influence in church history. And there's four of these that we identified as being the most strongly influential uh, in terms of identifying with the church. So you see the Reformation up there began in 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. And there's a Bible above that because uh, in line with the Reformation, we believe, this is why we're Protestants, that the the Bible is our sole authority. It has a greater authority than the church tradition. And then there's the Anabaptists, a movement that began around 1525, right around the same time as the Reformation. They were considered the the most radical of the Reformers. And from them, we get our strong emphasis on nonviolence and on loving our enemies. That's why there's a dove above them. Uh, Then there's the pietistic movement that informs Woodland Hills Church. Uh, This was a movement in the 17th and 18th century that was reacting against the state church, uh, the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. And uh, they emphasized the need for people to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It wasn't enough just to belong to the establishment. You can't get into the kingdom riding someone else's coattails. You have to have your own relationship with Jesus. And we are influenced by that movement because we stress very strongly the need to have your uh, uh, own personal relationship with Jesus. And then there's the charismatic movement. Uh, we are a, a group of people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, uh, are for today. They need to be used in proper context, but they're for today. And so in that way, we're uh, part of the charismatic movement. Uh, so in the weeks to come, we'll be talking about each of these. The last two weeks will be spent on the Anabaptists. So we're not going to go in, in a chronological order. Uh, but we're going to spend the last two weeks on Anabaptists because that's the group that most, is most influential in the identity of Woodland Hills Church. So the, these streams all converge here, forming a tapestry that is the identity of Woodland Hills Church. This morning, I want to lay the foundation for the whole thing by talking not about what is distinctive about Woodland Hills Church, but, but rather talking about what Woodland Hills Church has in common with the church universal, the church throughout history. Uh, there has been a core set of beliefs that have always defined orthodoxy. A core set of, of beliefs often referred to as the dogma of the church, the dogma, foundational doctrines. And these are beliefs that, the, that, that Christians have always held in common throughout history. And Woodland Hills affirms that core set of beliefs. It's, a, it's the set of beliefs that are, are expressed uh, and uh, uh, ancient confessions of the church like the Apostles' Creed which we'll be reading a little bit later on uh, in this service and Wolden Hills is, is, has, shares in common with, these other, uh, with all other expressions of the body of Christ the, this core dogma it's this core dogma and this church universal because really there's only one church it has a lot of different expressions but there's one church that shares this common set of beliefs and it's this that is referred to at least most scholars, uh, Christian scholars agree that this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians four, when he says this, he says, "There's one body. There's only one body. There's only one church. The church universal, the historic Orthodox Church. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord. There's one faith. Now, every church has its own doctrines, but it's that core set of beliefs that is the 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 one faith of the church. There's one baptism." There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so Woodland Hills Church affirms this one faith. We are part of this one body. We're we're an expression of the church universal. We are not ourselves the church. We're part of the church. And we want to be a a church that does all we can do to further the unity of the one body of Christ under the one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the core of the dogma of the church, the center of the center, if you will, what has been the, 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 the cornerstone of the, the whole edifice of the church universal throughout history is the person of Jesus Christ. What most fundamentally defines the church universal, and therefore what most fundamentally defines Woodland Hills Church, is our belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the King of kings and the Lord of all lords, and he's the Savior and he's the Creator. And so with the Church Universal, we emphasize that. In fact, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you've certainly picked up, I'm sure you picked up, that, that we, more, than, more frequently than any other thing, we preach Jesus Christ and the importance of grounding our faith in Jesus Christ and rooting everything we're about in the person of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, uh, we are sharing uh, the, the center of the center, the foundation of the foundation, the cornerstone of the Church Universal throughout history and all over the world. I want to explore that more deeply here as we look at two passages of scripture. The first is from 1 Corinthians 3. Our one foundation, Jesus Christ. Paul says, "For no other can lay no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ." He is the one foundation we share in common, the dogma, but the one ultimate foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. That's why it's the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we're the body of Christ. Um, with are the, the temple of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's the foundation of it all. And another important passage that I'll explore a little bit deeper here is Matthew chapter 16. which says that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others say that you're Elijah. Still others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus makes it personal and says, Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. He's anointed one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. The word there is Petros. We'll talk about that in a moment. But on this rock, the word is Petra there, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of death and the gates of Hades, even the gates of hell shall not overcome it because it's built on this Petra. Pray with me here just for a moment. Uh, Father, anoint this message. God, infuse it with your word and your spirit and your authority to do what human words can never do, which is to build your kingdom. Make this a kingdom moment. God, that, that helps us identify uh, with your one bride, your one church, your, your, one, your one body. And build your kingdom in our lives. Bring us in to be more passionate, committed members of the body of Christ. And teach us your ways. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. So what Jesus says, it's the most important question a human being can ever ask. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Peter finally says, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because that wasn't just a, a piece of human reasoning. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't say that because you're smart. You said that because uh, it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. as a revelation. And then Jesus says, and this is his first teaching on the church we find in the Gospels. It's the, it's the Magna Carta of the church. It's the foundational teaching of the church. He says, blessed are you, uh, Simon, son of Jonah. And you are Peter, and I was going to do a word play. You are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church. The question is, what is the rock that the church is built on? Our uh, Catholic brothers and sisters, uh, they believe that the rock is, is Peter. That Peter was the first pope. Peter is the foundation of the church. and Jesus is here identifying the rock as Peter. And with all due respect, I have to humbly disagree with that. Um, in fact, I, as I read this passage, Jesus is doing the opposite of that. Jesus is not only not identifying Peter as the rock, I think that he's distinguishing, contrasting Peter with the rock he's going to build his church on. And that's why he does this wordplay. He says, Peter, you are Petros. And the word Petros in Greek means rock-like or little rock, a stone, could even be a pebble. You are a pebble. You are a pebble. But on this rock, the connective there is chi. It could be and on this rock, or it could be but on this rock, depending on whether it's a connective or a contrastive chi. You don't care, but, but uh, it could be but. I think it's a but. Uh, but on this rock, and now he uses a different word. He, it, it's petra. And petra means big rock, or it could mean boulder. On this rock, I will build my church. And so what I see Jesus doing here is this. I, I think he's, he's saying, you know, Peter, you are a pebble. You're a blessed pebble, <laughs> Because you just gave this rock of a revelation that I, I'm the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So you're blessed, but you're a pebble. But on this Petra of what you just said, this Petra of the revelation that didn't come by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This Petra of revelation that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what I'm going to build my church on. And that's why the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Because it's going to be based on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so I, I think Jesus is saying, Peter, you're a pebble, you're a blessed pebble, but I would never build my church on a pebble. I, uh, you know, you're a pebble, you're not nearly big enough and you're not nearly strong enough to sustain the weight of the church universal throughout history. Uh, no, no, uh, my church will be built on this revelation that comes from heaven, this revelation from my Father above. Uh, and it's the revelation that Jesus Christ, the Petro-revelation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's one foundation and no other foundation can be laid. And it's been the foundation of Woodland Hills Church from the start. But more importantly, it's the foundation of the church from the start. And it's, it's, it, the, the one sure foundation is the Petra-Revelation, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. It's the Petra-Revelation, that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, the one and only perfect revelation of God. That Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, praise God. The one and only mediator, the one and only creator, hallelujah. Uh, the, the one sure foundation of the church is the petro revelation That Jesus Christ is the King of all kings, and the Lord of all lords, and the God of all gods. Praise God, the Lamb of God, the Word of God, the incarnation of God. Amen. Yes, it, it, this, this thing isn't built on some pebble. It's built on this rock, this petro revelation that Jesus Christ is the rock of the church, the boulder of the church, the Petra of the church. And he's the Petra of our faith. And the Petra of our, of our identity has got to be the rock of our identity and the rock of our worth and the rock of our significance. And the, the, the rock of our joy and the rock of our peace and the rock of our courage and the rock of our strength. He's the rock of ages, praise God. And, and that is what sustains the church and holds up the church and builds the church throughout its history. And that's why the gates of hell can never prevail against it. There's one foundation that's been laid, not two, one. And that one foundation is Jesus Christ. See, the thing is, is that Peter is a pebble, and I'm a pebble, and you're a pebble, and the Pope's a pebble. We're all pebbles. And pebbles can be blessed. Pebbles can be used to give divine revelation. And pebbles are, are, Peter here gave us profound revelation, so we can be blessed. But we're always pebbles. And pebbles don't make good foundations. I, we, we, pebbles are fickle. I mean, Peter, you know, he's, 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 a, he's just one of us. He's fickle. So here he is giving his divine revelation. He's blessed. But five verses later, when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I've got to suffer, Peter gets, says, no, we're not going to let it happen. And then Jesus says, get out of my way, Satan. And so, you know, because he... He, he clearly, Peter had the, the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, but he clearly was all jacked up when, when, in terms of understanding what the Messiah was. He had this macho image of a Messiah. The Messiah to be the Arnold Schwarzenegger that's going to you know, beat up all the Romans and free Israel from all of that and solve all the political problems. He wanted a macho Messiah, the kind of Messiah that a lot of folks are still looking for today. Uh, but, but Jesus, the Messiah, was going to suffer. So Peter gets in the way, and Jesus says, Get out of my way, Satan. Get behind me. So this guy goes from being blessed to being Satan in the span of five verses. He's, he's a pebble! He's fickle! He sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it very wrong. Sometimes he's got a revelation of God and five verses later he's getting a revelation from Satan. You see? And that's what we pebbles are like. We're, 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 we're fickle. We, 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 we get it right sometimes. We get it wrong sometimes. We, we can be petty. We can be self-centered. We pebbles can be hypocritical. And we pebbles can just be plain stupid. Somebody say amen to that. We are gonna be stupid. We pebbles do stupid really well. But see, Jesus Christ is never fickle. And Jesus Christ doesn't get it right sometimes and wrong sometimes. He's always getting it right. And Jesus Christ is never self-centered. And Jesus Christ is never hypocritical. And Jesus Christ, is—he's he never, he never does stupid. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God in him. There's no shadow of turning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Never began, will never end. He's eternally steadfast, eternally sure. He's the rock of ages. He never changes, praise God. He's not some pebble. No, this is the boulder, this is the Petra that holds up the church throughout its history. This rock, it can't be moved, this rock. It can't be compromised. This rock cannot be terminated or exterminated. It can't be extinguished. It can't be annihilated, this rock. It can't be defeated. It can't be diffused. It can't be destroyed. This is the rock of ages. And so we at Woodland Hills Church preach more frequently than anything else, and with, with as much passion as we with anything else, that everything's got to be based on Jesus Christ. Everything! And in doing this, we're simply articulating with passion what has been the cornerstone of the church throughout its history. We, we, we encourage people to have all of your faith based on Jesus Christ. All of it. And your picture of God exclusively based on Jesus Christ. And your picture of yourself exclusively based on Jesus Christ. And your picture of other people exclusively based on Jesus Christ. That Jesus was willing to die for them. Uh, That's got to define your relationship with every other person, including your worst enemies, praise God. And and we encourage people to have all of their identity in Jesus Christ. So all of their securities in Jesus Christ. And their self-worth is in Jesus Christ. And we've got to base our lifestyle on Jesus Christ. We've got to base our worldview on Jesus Christ. It's all got to be based, rooted solidly, on the person of Jesus Christ, who is our one rock. Our one foundation, the one Petra that holds up everything, holds up everything. When it comes to, when it comes to your faith, I encourage you, don't, don't, don't anchor it in, in, in me or in Peter or in any other person out there, Bruxy or the Pope. Uh, no, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. When it comes to anchoring your faith, amen. Amen. And when it comes to anchoring your faith, I, I encourage you... Uh, don't go look into Woodland Hills Church. Because we might get it right sometimes and wrong sometimes. But don't go look into the Catholic Church. Or don't go look into the Wesleyan Church, the Pentecostal Church, or the Reformed Church. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Amen. And when it comes to where you're going to anchor your trust and anchor your hope, don't anchor it in any person. Uh, not, not in me, not in the Pope, not in your mama. No, no. Uh, when it comes to your trust... Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Don't anchor your trust in America. Don't anchor it in America's military or America's government or in Congress or the president. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Amen? And when it comes to your fundamental trust, your fundamental hope. Now, you can't even trust yourself on this one. Now, don't even look to yourself. You can't put your trust in your talents or, or in your abilities or in your possessions, the house you have, or your 401k plan. You can't put your trust in, 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 in what's here today, anything you grab onto, anything you can see, anything you can, can touch. No, you, you, your fundamental trust, the core of, of what your hope is in, has got to be based in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Because everything else is sinking sand. It's sinking sand. That's why Jesus said, don't build your house on the sand. You've got to build it on the rock. That's the only thing that will weather the storm. Everything in this world, this oppressed world, this fallen world is in a state of decay. It's all fallen. It's all oppressed. It's wearing down. It's dying. I said last week, the stench of death is, is everywhere. So everything you can see and, and everything you can touch, it will eventually leave you. And the people around you maybe will get it right sometimes and wrong sometimes, and they may... Be trustworthy sometimes, but disappoint you other times. And, and, and your body is wearing down, you may have noticed. Uh, it, it's, it's in a state of decay. You can't trust that. And your brain is wearing down. And your talents are wearing down. And the economy's shaky, and it will eventually fall apart. And the nation's shaky, and it will eventually fall apart. Because the entire world is shaky, and the entire world will, will fall apart. The one thing you can count on, the one thing that is always the same, the one thing that never changes, is the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Anchor all your hope, all your faith, and trust on him. You know, if I, if I didn't believe in Jesus Christ, I would be the most cynical, depressed person because there's nothing else going. There's just nothing else that you can root for. Honestly, it's, it's all a mess, and it's all in a state of decay. Uh, but if your hope's in Jesus Christ, well, things are looking very bright. Would you agree? Things are looking very bright. I'm very optimistic. Not about anything except Jesus Christ, <laughs> but he is more than enough. And I know that, that he, he, he reigns forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And all who put their trust in him will do the same. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. 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 That's been the cornerstone of the church from the start. The, the, the one true church has always been based on Jesus Christ. The one true church is the church that has, uh, it has him as its foundation. And the one true church is the church that's been built on Jesus, and it's built and built by Jesus, and it's been built for Jesus, and it's owned by Jesus. That's why Jesus says, after saying Peter's blessed, he goes, and on this rock I will build my church. Who's the builder? Jesus. Who owns it? Jesus. And who's the rock? Jesus. So Jesus is the rock, Jesus is the builder, and Jesus is the owner. We ought never say that this is Greg Boyd's church, or the Meeting House is Bruxy Cabby's church, or uh, that it's the Pope's church, or it's, the, it's Luther's church. Uh, we ought, No, the only name that should ever be associated with a church, if it's worth calling a church, it's owned by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And he's the one building it. It's not my job to build a church. And you know, he'll use people to build the church. He uses pebbles, but he's the builder. And we, we, we can't shoulder that responsibility. When we do, we start to get carnal and prideful and clingy and, and, and idolatrous. No. Keep your hands off it. I, I, I speak to all the pastors out listening to me right now. Keep your hands off the church. It's not yours. They're your sheep. You don't own them. And don't think it's your job to build it. No. He'll use your talents, but he's... You know you can plant and you can water, but God gives the increase. So don't pat yourself on the back that you got a bunch of people attending. It's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> and the minute you think it does, you're in trouble. So there's one, there's one true church. Now, it doesn't look like that, does it? It doesn't look like there's one church. There's thousands of varieties out there. There's a tremendous plurality of, of churches out there. So what's this one church thing about? See, here's the thing. I think it's, it's pretty, pretty much to be expected that we have all these different angles on things. There's all these different theologies and all these different opinions. That's to be expected, I think, because we're pebbles. we got pebble brains, you know, and, and, and we see through a glass darkly, and it's a fallen, oppressed world. So we're going to see things differently. I mean, I wish that everybody was just bright enough to agree with me, but they're not. What can I do? What can I do? (laughs) So we we all have a perspective on things, and that's not, in and of itself, it's not ideal, it won't always be that way, but, but in a fallen world, it's to be expected. Sadly, however, the church has never done a good enough job at expressing our unity, a unity that transcends our differences. We have this core that we've always had in common, And we we don't do enough to express that unity and to build that unity. Because a unity doesn't need complete uniformity. Uh, A a, a unity that's worth anything is a unity that embraces diversity. And so it can embrace these different perspectives if we'll allow it. It's sad that we've never been good at at expressing this this one church, the unity that unites us all together. What happens is, is this. We've got the different perspectives. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's not ideal, but it's just the way it is. But... The church becomes divided when we start to get life, and by that I mean getting our worth and our significance, our, 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 our meaning. We start to get it from the particular things that we believe rather than from Jesus Christ. The minute we start doing that, well, the, church, the unity of the church is threatened because we now have made an idol out of our beliefs. See, if I'm not getting my life from Jesus Christ and my worth and my sense of well-being from Jesus Christ, I'm going to try to get it from somewhere else because we all need life. We're all hungry for life. And if you're a carnal person, you'll you'll try to get life in the ordinary carnal ways. You'll you'll, you'll get it through sex and fame and power or whatever. You'll, You'll be trying to acquire that. But if you're a religious person, it's more likely that you'll be trying to get your life and identity and worth from the rightness of your beliefs and from the holiness of your behavior. And see, that is just as carnal and idolatrous as getting it from sex, fame, and power. Maybe it looks a little better, but it's just as carnal. And the minute we start getting life from our rightness, see, then then the church becomes the club of all the people who believe the right things and engage in the holy behaviors. And then we will contrast ourselves with those who believe the wrong things and engage in the sinful behaviors. And we'll feed off of that contrast, and now we're a church of little Pharisees. And the unity of the church gets blown apart because we're getting our life. We're making idols out of the rightness of our beliefs. And the holiness of our behavior. It's so important that we get it from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's why we here at Woodland Hills Church, we have have distinctive beliefs. Uh, Every church does. And and that's normal. But we never want to let our distinctive beliefs become a source of life for us. We never want to let our distinctive beliefs become a badge of honor. We never want to let our distinctive beliefs become something that causes us to look down on those who disagree with us or to think that we're somehow superior. We never want to let our distinctive beliefs become a source of life that then divide us from from other Christians. We never want to let our distinctive beliefs get in the way of our call to be furthering the unity of the church. Because while we feel called to affirm our distinctive beliefs, we're also called to be part of the one church universal, and to be building the one church universal, and to be expressing the one church universal, the historic orthodox church. We have to get our life from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. And so now I want to say something about how we balance that. How do we balance our distinctive beliefs with our call to be one with the church universal? Uh, to get at that, let me talk. there's different ways that people do faith. I want to just show two different ways of doing this. One I think is conducive to the unity of the church. The other one I think is disastrous for the unity of the church. A lot of people and a lot of churches... They, they, they hold their faith kind of like a container. And in that container is all their beliefs, which they, of course, think are all true. You wouldn't believe it if you didn't think it was true. So the, the faith is now the container of all true beliefs. And in the, these beliefs are all, are all held as being equally important. So if you disagree with them on, uh, you know, you have the trinity, the end times, communion, inspiration, predestination, creation, whatever. This is the box of all true beliefs, right? And if you disagree with any part of that box, well, then you disagree with the whole thing. To disagree on the the end times is as disastrous as disagreeing on the Trinity, because in this framework, all beliefs are held to be equal. They're all equally important. This way of doing faith is, is, is not conducive to the unity of the church, because the only way you can fellowship with people who do faith this way is by agreeing with everything. It's a package deal. It's an all or nothing deal. And so if you disagree with anything, well then, boom, there's division, it's also, I think, a rather presumptuous way of holding your faith because you're presupposing that you happen to be the people who have it all right. You're the blessed person who has all the right beliefs and has a container of all true beliefs, which is, I think, rather unlikely. And it's also a dangerous way of holding your faith because if you are holding your faith as kind of a box of all true beliefs, well then, if you question any part of your faith, it calls the whole thing into question. And I was at the University of Minnesota, I've shared this before, but I, I was given, you know, I was saved in a fundamentalist church in 1974, and I was given the a, a, a container of all true beliefs. I was part of the club of people who believe all the true things. And uh, uh, so I was taught, and they were all equally important, so I was taught that if Genesis 1 isn't literally true, uh, and the earth wasn't created in, in seven literal days, and the earth isn't uh, 10,000 years old or less, well then the whole Bible is a book of lies. So my first class at the U was a class in evolutionary biology. And uh, I went in there with my, you know, my apologetic guns loaded because I was going to prove this professor wrong and save the class from this horrendous lie. And it didn't quite work out that way. And it, I, I, I ended up beginning to suspect that there's something to this theory, at least to suspect that the earth is older than 10,000 years. And see, sadly, that called into question the whole, my whole belief system. I mean, Looking back on it, it strikes me as absolutely stupid that my opinion about the age of the earth could have barred me from a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, just, it's, it's absurd that your opinion about how God created us should, should either include you in the kingdom or exclude you from the kingdom. No, no, it's a disastrous way of holding your faith. You really, to, to maintain the conviction that you have all the, the, the true beliefs and they're all equally important, you really got to barricade yourself from the world and make sure that you don't read books that might disagree with you because uh, that could call the whole thing into question. A much healthier way of holding your faith, I submit to you, uh, a, a, a less dangerous, healthy way, a more healthy way of, of holding our faith is not as a container of all true beliefs, but rather to see it as sort of uh, uh, in concentric circles, where the center is what's most important and then there's another ring that is very important but not quite as important and then there's another ring that is sort of important but not quite as important as the previous ring and then there's another ring of things that are maybe interesting but still less important so that you can you can scale out your beliefs and you don't hold them all with the same intensity here's how here's the kind of faith that we recommend here at Woodland Hills Church as how we do relate the relationship with the church universal the first ring the first circle at the core is, as I just mentioned, the person of Jesus Christ. And we encourage people to make that the all-important center of the center, the foundation of everything. And we encourage people to get all your life and all your worth and all your identity uh, from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Because see, Jesus isn't just another one of the beliefs that we have. It's not like we have, you know, we believe in Jesus like we believe in creation and believe in the inspiration of the Bible and so on. He's not just one of the beliefs. We have a relationship with Jesus, and that's, that, that's where we get our life and, and our identity and our relationship with God. We have a relationship with Jesus, but we don't have a relationship with our other beliefs. See, He's in a different category altogether. I believe that God created the world ex nihilo, from nothing. But I don't have a relationship with that belief. I, I don't pray to that belief or you know, have a low affair with that belief, but I do with Jesus. I believe the Bible's inspired, but I don't have a relationship, a personal relationship, with my view of inspiration. I believe it, but... See, he's in a different category altogether. And so we encourage people to, at the very center of everything, put the person of Jesus Christ and leverage everything on that. Get all of your life from Jesus Christ. Because, see, if you're not getting your life from Jesus Christ, you're going to have to get it somewhere else. And if you're a carnal person, you'll try to get it from sex, fame, and power. But if you're a more spiritual person, you'll try to get it from the rightness of your beliefs or the holiness of your behaviors. You see, and uh, that's when we get all defensive and, and, and angry if someone questions our belief because they're questioning a source of life. We leverage too much on the rightness of our beliefs. And the church becomes pharisaical and judgmental. But see, if I'm getting all of my life, all my worth from the person of Jesus Christ and from him alone, then here's the thing. I don't have to be right about anything else. Now, it turns out that I am, but I don't have to be. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm kidding when I say that, by the way. I, you know, everything you believe you think is right, uh, but, but, but uh, I'm, I know that I'm wrong in a lot of stuff. Um, at least it's humble for me to say that. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't see... I want to believe the right things, and I think it's important to believe the right things, but it's not central to my identity. And that, see, that frees me so that now if I question one of my beliefs, I don't have to go crazy and it's not the end of the world. I can change my beliefs because uh, in, 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 I'm free to do that. I'm not getting life from being right about everything. And if someone has a different, difference of opinion, I don't have to get puffy and angry and my amygdala doesn't have to get activated and, and, and I don't have to get carnal when that happens. I know I can love them and we can calmly and rationally discuss this because they might be right. See, I, it, it, if, you, if Jesus Christ is the source of your life, then you're free to learn and you're free to question. You're free to investigate. You're free to, to have authentic dialogues with people who disagree with you. And you can do it in calm and loving ways. Whenever someone gets hot and bothered because you disagree with them, that's one indication that maybe they're holding on to their rightness a little too tightly. They're sucking a little bit of worth out of this. They're getting, they're getting something from it. So we encourage you to have, have Jesus Christ as your source of life. And that's the center of the center. The next ring is uh, what's often called dogma. Now The word dogma today is kind of a bad word. We, everything's dogmatic. It's kind of pejorative, negative. But but in the church tradition, it's a positive thing. The dogma are the foundational beliefs that that the Christians have always shared. This is what C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. It's that one faith that Paul talks about in in Ephesians 4. It's what Christians have believed throughout all of history and at all times. It's what defines orthodoxy. The the historic uh, orthodox church. This, This is the definition of it. This is the faith that is expressed in the ancient creeds. Like The oldest one, arguably, is the Apostles' Creed. Some of us grew up saying the Apostles' Creed every time we went to church. Uh, I, I said it often every day because I had to go to Mass every day. Um, and it, it expresses the, the faith of the church universal. And Woodland Hills is part of this. So what I want to do right now is to take a break and read the Apostles' Creed. And I don't think we've ever done this before, and it actually convicts me because we ought to be doing more that expresses our unity with the church universal. Uh, th- this creed, as we read this, re- be aware of the fact that you, you're, you're, you're confessing a faith that Christians have confessed for sixteen or 1,700 years. In all different cultures, in all different places, throughout history, we've had this in common. And it expresses the core dogma of the church. So, let's uh, read this. this the, it wasn't actually written by the apostles, by the way. It's usually dated around the 3rd or 4th century. But it's, it's called the Apostles' Creed because it expresses... Was well, believed to be the faith of the apostles, and by the way, in this creed it expresses the faith of the one holy Catholic Church, and Catholic there doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Uh, it's referring to, the word Catholic means universal, so it's the universal Church. So let's read it together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. And so we at Woodland Hills Church, with the Church Universal, affirm that. All the basic doctrines, the foundational dogma of the church is found right there. The Trinity, uh, the final judgment, the resurrection of Jesus, virgin birth, crucifixion, it's all found right there. So that's the dogma. And it is important we don't get life from it. But right outside of the one that we do get life from is the ring of dogma, and it's it's what defines orthodoxy. Then the next ring of things is what's often called doctrine. And these are just the beliefs that churches have always had, but we've never agreed on them. And they usually surround different interpretations or applications of the dogma. We agree on the dogma, but now what does it mean? Well, now churches have their different doctrines. And so we've disagreed on on, the the exact meaning of communion or the exact way to baptize. We've disagreed on on how to relate God's providence to free will and and, and things like that. These are the distinctives that define different denominations. We agree on the dogma, but we differ in terms of the doctrines. And so Woodland Hills has its particular doctrines. Uh, that kind of distinguish it. And then the outer ring uh, is, is what is, we could just call opinions. And these are just things that Christians have at times believed throughout history. And sometimes new things are believed by individual Christians today. Um, and they, they're within the parameter of the Orthodox Church, but no church body has ever adopted them as its doctrine. Okay? So here within the Church, we've got a, a, a wonderful different array of opinions on things. And this is just about, like, my, my open view of the future is an opinion. I want to preach this doctrine. It's just one way of looking at things. It makes sense to me. It doesn't make sense to some other people. Or, or, you know, different ideas on the end times or different ideas on creation and evolution and, uh, you know, whatnot. Different ways of interpreting various verses. These are all in the realm of opinion. And we encourage people to have their opinions and to share their opinions. And we can learn from one another as long as we remember that our source of life is not our opinions. Our source of life is Jesus Christ. So if you're right, you're right. But if you're wrong, okay, you're wrong, and you can change your beliefs. And, uh, and, and we don't want to major in the minors, so we, we have a wonderful uh, plurality of, of, of views here. Um, and that gives people space to grow and to think on their own and, and to flourish. So Woodland Hills Church, we have our distinct beliefs. But we always want to be affirming our unity with the church universal and working for the unity of the church universal, even as we affirm passionately our distinctive beliefs. But most importantly, we want to be uh, grounding everything in Jesus Christ, a view of God, a view of ourselves, everything grounded in Jesus Christ, our one source of life, which frees us now to learn and to grow and to explore and to question. And so speaking of questions, let's see if we have any. What do we got? What is the fine line between destroying unity and speaking against false teachings? Wonderful. Well, um, see, here's the, if, uh, the fine line would be, I would think, um, the, well, a little bit depends on context, but if you're talking about a false teaching that deals with dogma, then see, that's the fine line. It's, what has defined the church um, uh, historically has been the, those core central dogmas. And so if, if one in the context of the church is speaking something that is completely contrary uh, to the foundational dogma of the church... Well, that's your criteria. You have to stand up, and, and, and so as a way of protecting the church, you have to speak about, against that. Just, it's just a matter of saying that is not what the church has believed. That's not consistent with the Apostles' Creed. Now, you may have a different context where uh, it's not just the church universal, but you're talking about your particular church. Because you know, a church is, is, is sort of a community, a covenantal community of people, and we rally around particular beliefs. And, and so the, the, you know, the beliefs that are, you have at, at the meeting house or at, at the sanctuary will be a little bit different than the beliefs we have here at Wilderness Church and be very different from what you have at Bethlehem Baptist Church and other places. But so we all have our, our kind of beliefs that we rally around. And so in that context, it may be appropriate at times to uh, say that belief, if someone's teaching something that's not contrary to what we've agreed on here, you've got to point that out. All right, and so there's times where I have had to just take aside someone who is teaching something, and I always assume they're doing it with a very sincere heart and they mean well, but to say this is not how we see it here, and so you need to know how we see it here, and, and if you see it otherwise, maybe uh, you know, there's a different body that you're called to. And so it, the criteria is, I think, always the church, the, the, the dogma of the church, church universal, but then the criteria would be the particular church that you're, that you're ministering in. It's always also appropriate to ask this question. And it's always important to say, I mean, just because someone d- disagrees with you doesn't mean that it's a false teaching. Um, and some folks, you know, they assume that the map is the territory. And so their way of looking at things is God's way of looking at things. So if you disagree with them, you are disagreeing with God. That's not quite that simple. Like one person said to me uh, a while back, he goes, you know, I, we were talking about uh, interpreting the Bible. And he goes, I don't interpret the Bible. I just read it. Like, oh, the rest of us have to interpret it. Sorry. Um, but, you know, so it's always, you need to always stay humble on this and to say, okay, maybe, you know, they're seeing it differently. You also have to ask the question of, of, of what's the appropriate way to confront something? And in a church context, you know, if you're a pastor, then you have one role to play in confronting, uh, confronting false teachings. If you're a parishioner, it's a different thing. You know, and so you got to look at what is your place and, and work through channels of authority and things like that. Um, but it depends on the context. Very good question, thanks. Another question. I've understood the Gospels to only tell parts of the story about Jesus. If he's the center, why don't we have the full story? It feels difficult to base everything on an impartial uh, story. That's interesting. That's that's what I love about it. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Look, it it was two things here. One is um, the way that you did... Biographies in the ancient world. I mean, we like to know every detail and all the facts. We read a biography of somebody. You don't just have a little snippet from their childhood and then jump to the last, you know, couple years of their life. We like the whole story and all the facts and the details. But in the ancient world, they never did. They never did biographies like that. The way that you wrote about someone's life is you looked at the highlights and the main things, the important things. And so, part of that's a cultural thing. We're led to maybe expect. Uh, things that are different from the ancient world. But always remember that it's our job to conform to Scripture, not Scripture's job to conform to us. And, and, and we in the modern world, we have a lot of, you know, we can't take our assumptions and read them back into the Bible. We, we've got to rather learn what, what they were thinking and try to get back into their world. But the second thing is that, that what we have is what is needed uh, for our relationship with God through Christ and for our salvation. And that's true of the whole Bible. God gives us what we need. Maybe not what we, our curiosity would like. He, he doesn't write to satisfy our curiosity. Uh, he writes for our growth and spirituality and our relationship with, with, with Him. And so, what we're given is what we need to know in order to, uh, to, to know how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to follow Him and, and all of that. Uh, and so, so it's, uh, it's sufficient. And I guess the other thing I'd say is, is this that uh, the word impartial there. You know, from a historical perspective, the gospel authors they write with a bias, so they're not at all objective historians like, like people try to be today. Although, frankly, the ob- so-called objective histories—there's no such thing as objective history. Just like there's no such thing as objective news. It's spin all the way. So you just know that. Um, but you know, we at least contemporary academic historians try to be objective, and they kind of belittle ancient histories because they were they're biased. But the thing is, is you know, the, of course, the gospel authors write with a bias. They're believers for crying out loud. I've heard scholars say that you can't trust the gospel authors because they are passionately invested in their subject matter. That, that's like that, that's a little bit like 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 questioning uh, the, a, a Jewish person who's passionate about reporting on what's going on in Auschwitz, Germany, and questioning it because they're passionate about it. But see, if what they're telling is the truth, then they would be passionate about it, wouldn't they? So also, if Jesus Christ was who they said he was and made the claims that he, he, he made and did the deeds that he did and rose from the dead, well, you'd expect them to be passionate. So you can't just qualify them because they'd be passionate. If they weren't passionate, then I would suspect something's up. All right. I've got time for one or two more. I never understood communion of the saints in the Apostles' Creed. Could you please explain it? Yes, this is the area that trips Protestants up the most because we don't talk about that much anymore. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it says we believe in the communion of saints. And the fact that it was put in there shows that this was a central, uh, centrally important thing in the early church, the communion of saints. What, what it's referring to there is just that, that Christians understood, uh, have, and have always understood, that we're part, we have a, there's a spiritual unity. And sometimes they call it the mystical union of the body of Christ. There's a communion. And, and, and what it's just saying is we're acknowledging that that this thing we're a part of is bigger than us. We're acknowledging that that we're part of a body that is, is not just, you can't contain it in Woodland Hills or any other particular church. It's the communion with the saints all over the place. And it's even a communion with the saints throughout history. Uh, they're, they're, there's a spiritual union that we are, we're part of this one body. and And see, it, it, it trips us up a little bit because we see people die and they go away. Uh, but they, they were part of the body, and that body is still alive, so it's a little bit like, like you, you know my body and your body, is, we're losing cells all the time, right? But the body's still around. I've never tried out this analogy before, and whenever I do that, it's dangerous. <laughs> so, I don't know. I've not, I honestly never thought about it this way. I'm making this up as I go along. but But i 've gotten myself in trouble before, but well, okay let 's try it out. So do you know that you are lo- losing you know if, especially if you 're over the age of twenty one you 've been losing more cells than you 've been getting for a while uh, you, you 're losing cells all the time, and when you get up you're gonna leave, you 're probably going to leave know a couple million dead cells on the chair thanks a lot <laughs> you 're mucking up our church, <laughs> leaving your dead body behind no, we 're flaking all over the place we 're flaky. <laughs> So, next time someone says you're flaky, you go, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, we're always losing stuff all the time. And the older you get, the more you lose. Ain't that the truth? So, if you don't lose it in any of the right places, <laughs> you gain it in all the wrong places. Anyways, moving along. Um, you know, so, Communion of the Saints is what we're talking about here. So, the body of Christ. Okay, so I'm losing cells all over the place, but I still got my body. Sort of. Got my body. And so, you know, it's sort of like saying, my body now saying, you know, they were part of us. Uh, you know, what did you say that? I'm talking to my cells here. Yeah, there goes another cell. Bye. You know, you're losing cells. But they were part of the body. And they're part of us. And so we're just sort of acknowledging them. <laughs> okay, the analogy doesn't work. I got it. It's totally bad analogy. Those flaky Christians we've left behind we're just saying they're part of us. Now, okay, it does break down, and I've got to wrap this up before it gets way too out of control. But, you know, that, that, it's interpreted differently, and here's the major difference between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, in the Catholic tradition, the communion of saints, has, they've taken that to entail, to mean that there's actually a, a living dialogue that can happen. And so, um, like when I was raised uh, a young Catholic boy, I was taught that I could... Um, uh, my, my middle name is Anthony, and I'm told that was, that, that was from St. Anthony, and he's the patron saint of lost articles, uh, and um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> man, that, that, that I could use the saint on that area right now. You have no idea how many keys I lose, oh man, glasses, these are, these are my old glasses, I lost my new pair, it's ridiculous, <laughs> I lose everything. St. Anthony, what's your problem? <laughs> okay. So the... They have all these patron saints, and then you talk to different saints and Mary, you know, as a way of... of, So the communion is meant to have dialogue, whereas Protestants have always said, "Ah," you know, that that sounds too close to mediumship, uh, which is talking with the dead, and the Bible forbids that. So Protestants have always taken the mystical union, the communion of the saints, to simply mean that we're in union with the church worldwide and throughout time. Uh, and, and, uh, and it ends there, whereas the Catholics have interpreted it differently. But all agree that it just means that Christianity, this body of Christ thing, is way bigger than any of us, way bigger than any particular expression, way bigger than, than, than Lutheranism or Calvinism or Baptists or Mennonites, way bigger than, than any particular expression of it. It goes throughout all the world. It goes throughout all the time. And we are part of it. Amen. How do you deal with someone who seems to think their doctrine or opinion is dogma? or even the truth of Jesus. Yes. There are some folks out there whose, whose map is the territory. Uh, their way of seeing things is the only way of seeing things. Um, and, and, and so to disagree with them is to disagree with God himself. Have you ever met anyone like that? It can be very frustrating. Uh, and and they'll, they're very quick to throw around the word heretic. Uh, and the word, the word heretic is, it, it literally means other than, and it was used to just simply say uh, that you're outside of the parameters of the historic Orthodox Church. That's what the her- word heretic means. And it wasn't even meant as a nasty word. It was just meant of uh, a diagnosis. It's like saying, oh, no, that's outside the parameter. H- heresy is outside the parameter of the, that dogma. And it's sad when somebody elevates their opinion of things to such a level that now they define what it is to be in the one true church. When, when, it, when, when you call someone else a heretic... Uh, if it's not, if you're not accurately diagnosing the like the Apostles' Creed, then you're really—it's—it's it's presumptuous. It's—it's it's, uh, hubris. It's arrogant because you're elevating yourself to the status of, uh, you know, the one who determines whether you're orthodox or not. Uh, it, it, the one true church is defined by you. well, we all bow down. Um, you know, so if you're talking to a person like that, uh, maybe you know you just want to in love. Most important thing is. Uh, don't let yourself get activated and get angry or whatever. That doesn't help. Paul says, remember 1 Corinthians 16, 14, that everything you do be done in love. If you find yourself not doing it in love, then shut up. Okay? It's got to be done in love. So in love, try to help the person see that maybe their map is not the territory. Help them to, I encourage them to have a little bit of humility uh, in, in how they hold their beliefs. Like so One guy I had a discussion with, uh, you know, he, he, uh, we were talking about the interpretation of a verse, and I said, well, we, people can interpret it differently. You've got your interpretation, I've got mine. He goes, well, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it. Well, no. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> my, my, my. Uh, lucky you. <laughs> you know? uh, I, just, I just read it. See, that? that's just a, is a, a naiveness. It's like, you know, that... Uh, I had a discussion just recently with a, a, a pastor who was... Just say, he kept quoting his verse, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. And I was trying to help him see that that can be interpreted in several different ways to try to show that a friend of mine was not a heretic for interpreting it differently. And he just kept on saying, no, the verse says this. I go, I know that's what the verse says. And you think that when saying it, it means what you think it means, but I'm trying to show you that there's another way that it could mean. Well, no, the verse says. And it's just, it was like, this is a pretty, you know, endless circle, you know, and it's, sometimes you just got to get off the merry-go-round. it's just, you get dizzy. All right, good. Uh, I know that scripture is very important to Christians, but I didn't see it in your circles. Where does it fit? Very interesting question, very good. Um, well, I didn't put any particular beliefs in the circles other than Jesus. I mean, the only, the only content I had there was, was uh, Jesus. In fact, one of the things that we just gotta be out loud about is that uh, there is some disagreement uh, about what you put in what circle. I mean, there's some groups that would... Take their opinions and make them doctrines, and some would try to make their doctrines the dogma. So there's some fluidity there. One thing that's interesting is that um, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, you don't have any. You, there's no mention of the, the scripture, the inspiration of the Bible. You know, it was kind of interesting, and there's some discussion about why that is the case. Uh, some argue that it's because it was assumed, uh, which maybe is true. Uh, some argue that that uh, it wasn't seen as uh, they given the cultural situation in which the Apostles' Creed was made, it, it wasn't important enough to them to put in there. Uh, because, see, we, we live in a context where we're, uh, there's such a plurality of opinions that we always we, we need to emphasize strongly our basis of belief, which is Scripture. And so the Bible becomes more important to us than probably it was to the folks who wrote the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it, it's, it, it's our, it's our, we need to... Uh, ...emphasize it more because it's the, the foundation on which we disagree with other groups in a pluralistic environment. Whatever. However that is. I, I would say that it has been part of the dogma of the church. Even though it's not part of the early confessions, the role that scripture has played throughout history... Has, ...it wasn't a mere doctrine thing, whether you think the Bible's inspired or not. Because all the beliefs in the Apostles' Creed are derived from the Bible. And so, really, the creed presupposes the inspiration of the Bible. Even though it doesn't itself say that, that, that the Bible's inspired... And, and so I, I would say that that's a, a category of dogma. Now, how it's inspired, or what exactly it means, I think that's a matter of doctrine, if not opinion. Uh, the, the, the church has always had a wide variety of... When you read church history, it's you know, surprising how much uh, freedom theologians had to interpret that differently, and what exactly that means, and what is literal, what's allegory. and, and uh, Folks throughout history didn't have all... Uh, the, the kind of, they weren't as uptight about some of the things that he, American evangelicals tend to be uptight about. I mean, like, for example, even before uh, the theory of evolution came around, uh, a lot of Christians, St. Augustine, for crying out loud, he, he didn't interpret Genesis 1 literal. Uh, he thought that was figurative. But then some them thought it was literal, and they would have their discussions. And so uh, that the Bible's inspired, I think, plays a foundational dogma role how it's inspired or what exactly that means, whether you want to use the word inerrant or infallible. Uh, you know, That's, I think, a matter of, of doctrine or opinion even. Um, I, I'll just tell you, I'll end with this. I don't, the word inerrant, as I said uh, in, in a Q&A, I think, last week or the week before, the trouble with that word, is I, in my opinion, it's just an opinion though, uh, is that it sets up a criteria of accuracy uh, that the, the Bible never claims to aspire to. Uh, the Bible's written in an oral culture where they're much more free. They weren't as uh, as concerned about details as we are or the precise order of things. We, in our literate culture, uh, where, where you know, most people can read, we have a criteria of exactness that's much higher than cultures where people can't read. It's an oral culture. And the Bible's written in an oral culture, which is why you find all sorts of disagreements on, on, you know, in the Gospels, on the order of events or what exactly Jesus said and things of that sort. Um, and that would not bother ancient people. But see, if if you think the Bible is supposed to conform to your modern criteria of exactness, well then when you start studying the Bible, you might find yourself uh, questioning a lot of things. I got really screwed up when I first went to the University of Minnesota because I had this idea of inerrancy and it was a modern criteria of exactness and I started to discover the discrepancies uh, in the Gospels, which are only discrepancies by a modern standard, and I began to question the whole thing. How can this be inspired? There's contradictions. Well, we have to take the Bible on its terms, not our terms. Infallible is, I think, a better word because it's, it just means unfailing. It will never let you down if you're approaching it, you know, and interpreting it in the right way. And so, all right. Church history is plagued by humans misinterpreting the word. How are we to know the absolute truth unfiltered by human thought? Well, you could ask me. <laughs> 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 okay, I, yeah, I'm sorry, um... You're not going to get the absolute truth unfiltered by human thought. Um, the minute a human thinks it, think, thinks it it's filtered. Um, no, so, so we, we aspire towards truth, but it's always filtered. And we have to realize that our map is not the territory. We have to just be aware of the fact that it, it is the height of arrogance to forget that you're a pebble. And to forget that you're a human with a particular perspective and a particular angle. On things. Um, and so you can believe certain things be true. I do believe certain things to be true, obviously. We all have that. But always remember that you're human. Uh, and, and be very careful about identifying your thought with God's thought. There are folks I've met who, you know, if you want to know what God thinks, you just ask him. That's why I made a joke about that. You know, they, they speak with a, thus saith the Lord. And these folks can be very dangerous. Now at the same time, I want to be open to revelation. Peter had a revelation here. I want to be open to that. Uh, But but I'm never going to just take someone's word on it that they're speaking for God. What we want to do is to as humble human beings who are always in process and always learning and always growing. We wanna we wanna uh, ask you know what are your reasons for believing what you believe? If you have a truth claim, here's the truth. You know, give me your reasons for it. Uh, Why do you believe that? What's your evidence for it? And maybe I'll agree. Maybe I won't agree. Uh, But it's always filtered. Sorry, it's always filtered. It's it's always from a perspective. Um, That's why I, I I am most confident of Jesus Christ as Lord, the revelation of God, the revelation of me. Here's what God thinks about me. Um, and and I, I, I'll give you my reasons for thinking that. Uh, and I want to get my life from that. Everything else, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm 80% certain of this, 74% on this, uh, 52% on this. I don't need to be 100% on everything. And I, I encourage you not to need to be 100% everything. We're humans. Hey, let's just do one more, even though we're going over, but I want to, I, 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 this is too fun. I don't want to stop. How do I tell someone they are wrong without upsetting the unity of the church? <laughs> well, you just upset the unity of the church. <laughs> you know, it depends on, on, it depends on what they're wrong about. And it depends on if they're wrong. Be careful here. How do I tell someone they're wrong? Well, first of all, you know, are you sure that they're wrong? Because They may be right, because they're a human being just like you. So, you know, you may want to pose it. If you think someone's wrong, how do you share your perspective with them? <laughs> All right? And it depends on, on what you're talking about. If you're talking about a real minor issue, an, opi- uh, an, an opinion issue, there should be no issue about upsetting the union of the church. Even doctrine, you, know, you should be able to say, that's not my perspective. Here's my perspective, and here's why I believe it, uh, and, and share that way. That might put you outside the parameters of a particular church, but it doesn't put you outside the realm of orthodoxy. You just might have to go to a different church that more agrees with you. But most importantly, and I end with this, uh, if you're going to tell someone that you think they're wrong, because you're, you think it because it's filtered through you, just like theirs is filtered through them. Uh, but if you're going to share that, most importantly, getting your life from Jesus Christ, you share it in love. Therefore, you share it humbly, because love is humble. And you share it with an openness, and you share it believing the best and hoping the best. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let everything that you do be done in love. Everything. And the minute you start, the minute being right is more important to you than being being loving, do the kingdom of God a favor and shut up. (laughs) Amen. 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 Go back and pray and get your love on and then come back and have the discussion. Say, sorry, I've got to go get my love on and then come back and have a nice, calm, loving, and open discussion. I'm going to close in prayer and as I do, I would like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever, um, uh, come up here and share it with these folks. Uh, or if you're surrendering your life to Christ, come up here and share that with these folks. Uh, you know, and you can do that throughout the worship service as well. We have folks here who are available for prayer. You really want to have the body praying for the body. So don't leave with that burden on your own. Come up here and, and get it prayed for. So, Abba, Father, as we leave here, we do it as your church, your bride, uh, your temple. Uh, God, we surrender ourselves to you uh, in communion with the saints throughout history. We thank you, God, for making us part of your bride and, uh, and reminding us of this. And so, Lord, as we leave here, we pray that we would be the bride that you want us to be in doing the work that you call us to do, shining your light in a world of darkness to all people at all times, showing your love to all people at all times, and putting on display your beauty to bring others into the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's kingdom people say it. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go out and spread the word.